We are working through our series, uh, Rethinking Sexuality, so we're having the sex talk at church of all places, but this is where we need to do it, because God has created us, and there is a good order and a design for how he has created us. And I hope over the last few weeks you have just been encouraged to rethink differently about our design, to rethink differently about how we are created to glorify God and how we can do that with who he has made us as men and women in his image and in his likeness. Everything is rooted in God, and so he created us in his image, so the things about us speak something about him. And so he gave us this great gift of sexuality as a metaphor for the love relationship that he has with us. It is most honoring when it's in a committed covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman, a sacrificial, self-giving love. And so we desire that and long for that in our lives because we are created that way. But ultimately, it points more to the creator who desires that relationship with us as well. And so last week we looked at this idea that, that this great thing that God has created, like a beautiful masterpiece has been vandalized and it has been marred by Satan and his strategies are to deceive us and either to think that we are beyond the hope of forgiveness or to deceive us and say God really doesn't care what you do. Did God really say? Does God really have your best interest at heart? Yes, he does. And he gives us his word and he gives us uh, his word to instruct us how to do that. Uh, The word pandemic uh, comes from two Greek words, uh, meaning all and people. So pandemic is an epidemic, a disease that has spread across a large region, for instance, multiple continents or even worldwide, and it includes diseases. So that is a, a pandemic is a disease that has spread to everyone. Well, we have a pandemic spiritually, and the disease is called sin. And it has spread to everyone. It affects everyone. It infects everyone. And so Jesus, as he taught and as he walked with his disciples, for all their devotion, and we see this with Jesus over and over, what his disciples believed, and even the religious leaders, what they believed was there were only two kinds of people, the sick and the well. And the sick were those who, what, make mistakes and sin, but then there were the well or the righteous, And so when you categorize people as only the sick or the well, what category are you placing yourself in? The well. That's why we make those distinctions. We say, well, I am am well and I am righteous, and unlike all those other people out there. But Jesus' disciples failed to understand the brokenness of all people and the need of all people for the great physician. And that's why when we see Jesus interacting with even the religious leaders, they had this idea that we were in and everybody else was out. And what did Jesus say? No, you're all out. (laughs) There's nobody in. You're all out and in in need of of a great physician. And so what happened was their claims that everybody was either sick or well was a barrier to understand who Jesus was and why he came. Jesus taught that we're all flawed, broken people. The disciples, as well as those in religious leadership. And Jesus over and over made this point. And so the pandemic is everyone is sinful. But as we talk about rethinking sexuality, everyone is sexually broken as well. Now, sometimes it's difficult to swallow because we, sim- we sometimes define, um, we fi- define uh, sickness as the presence of symptoms. So we define sexual brokenness as the presence of symptoms. 
porn use or same-sex attraction or sexual trauma. And so what we say is, as long as you don't have any of the symptoms, you don't really need any help. But that's not how Jesus defined the sick and how he defined the well. Being healthy spiritually is not just the absence of outside symptoms, but it's the state of the heart. And so we often define health or illness, illness as as symptoms. And so that's why we try to get people fixed. We try to get people fixed in regard to their brokenness. And so what do we do? We put them in their groups and we say, you're broken in this area, you go to this group. You're broken in this area, you go to this group. And so brokenness is not simply the presence of symptoms. It's anything that keeps us from experiencing the gift of sexuality as the metaphor of the covenant love that God has for us. And so, even though there are no external symptoms, no pornography use or uh, uh, bad habits or those kinds of things, there are still uh, people who are sexually broken. Uh, uh, For instance, a woman woman who thinks that sex is dirty and shameful, right? There's no symptoms, but there's something going on inside. Or, Or a man who views women as objects to possess and to conquer and just to put another notch on his belt, right? That person is also sexually broken. And so all of us have this brokenness in our lives. And there's a couple reasons why, even when it comes to the area of sexuality, why we all experience brokenness. And so today, it's, I just want to be this very humbling thing for us to have a right standing beneath the cross of Jesus, to just have a right standing for who we are in God's sight. Not who I am in the sight of others, or who I even think others are, but who I am in the, in the sight of God. And the first reason that we can say we all have this pandemic of sexual brokenness is this. We just live in a fallen world. We live in a world where literally everything is broken. The fall marred everything and every aspect of humanity. We have uh, mental illnesses and physical illnesses, bodies and brains that don't function like they should. Why would we think that our sexuality would be spared from the fall? Why do we think that part of us would not be included in everything that is broken? Hormones that are out of balance or brains that with a faulty sexual response. Listen, everything was affected by the fall. Every part of our existence has been marred in some way. Not everyone is affected the same way, but we are all broken in some way. Everything about us does not function perfectly like God designed it at the beginning of creation. The second reason why we can say that we are all experienced sexual brokenness is we've all been harmed by sin. Now, some uh, people have experienced harm by sin in the most horrendous ways. The trauma of sexual abuse or rape, or some of those uh, horrible, horrible things. But we've all been broken by the world's consistent vandalism of sexuality. Who hasn't been on the metro and heard lewd comments? Who hasn't been at the gas station filling up and heard lewd comments coming out, right? Who hasn't seen movies? Who hasn't watched the news? The, The season finale of Game of Thrones is coming out, and everybody is excited but it's a vandalization of the sexuality of how God has created us. And we've all been harmed by sin. We have to fight to keep this beautiful picture of what God created sexuality to be. Don't you find that it's a fight in your life that everywhere you go, you can even be standing in line at the supermarket and they have the magazine cover 
stores. And they have all the th- stuff right there. And so we have to fight constantly. Why? Because we have all been sexually harmed by sin. Just the sin that's in the world. We can't avoid it. We cannot uh, not see it. It's just, it's just around us. It gets into our homes. It gets into our entertainment. It comes in through our computers. Right? It comes in all those kinds of ways. The third uh, way that we've all been broken by sin is we have all sinned sexually. Now listen, with our simplistic view of sexual health and morality, it is easy for Christians to fall into this self-righteous trap. And here's the self-righteous trap. I don't sin like you do, therefore I am not a sinner. Or I, you sin differently than I do, therefore God loves me a little better than you do, right? And so we have to be careful because there was, there was this well-intentioned purity advocate. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to confess, I actually have said this phrase years ago in youth group. And here's what the phrase was. It was encouraging people to, uh, to remain absent until marriage, to, to treat their virginity like a gift. And here was the phrase of a person who was uh, pure talking to a non-pure person. I can be like you any day, but you can never be like me again. Now listen, it fails to take into account the larger picture of God's design for sexuality. So many of these virgins, right, who said, well, I can be like you any day, but you can't ever be a virgin like me again. Do you see the attitude in that? There's just something wrong there. And so what happens is so many of these virgins are struggling with lust. They're having an unhealthy concept of dating and marriage. And more importantly, it misses the basic message of Jesus. Jesus came to save sinners like us. So I can't imagine Jesus saying to this person who is saying, well, I can be like you any day, but you can't become like me again. I can't imagine Jesus saying to that person, your heart is so pure. You have such a great attitude. No, what he would say is, you self-righteous sinner, you're no better than they are. And so what happens is we have all sinned sexually in some way. You know, there's those parts in the Bible you just want to rip out. And Jesus says, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. Whew! No external symptoms, right? But then what does he say? But if you've lusted with a woman in your heart. Oh, Jesus, what does he do? He always goes to the heart of the issue. And so we are all, if, if, if we are honest and open before the Lord, we, listen, we are all on the same ground here this morning. We have all, we live in the same fallen world. We have all been harmed by sin, and we've all sinned sexually. So we've all done something that has not honored God, either with our thoughts or with our actions. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. And it's Luke chapter 18 where Jesus really highlights this. And he, 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 he's speaking to us as believers. In Luke chapter 18, it's a story where Jesus um, tells this parable... But he goes to the house and he says, and he tells this parable. And Jesus tells his stories. He loves to paint us a picture. So in Luke chapter uh, uh, 18, verse 9, let's start there. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Look, you see the problem? So this parable is to that person who says, I can become like you any day, but you can't ever become like me. Look how righteous I am. So Jesus is directing this parable to that kind of a person, right? Who looks down on other people. Who thinks that other people's sin is worse than theirs. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, 
I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I go to small group every other week. I go to church every Sunday. I go to Sunday school when I can turn my clocks ahead and make it on time. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying what? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Jesus makes this clear distinction. And so which one does he commend? He commends the second man. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What's Jesus doing? He's turning our whole thinking upside down. That's why we're rethinking this whole thing. He says everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we trust ourselves, but we can't. The Bible says, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are in, the, you are in a group of sinners here today. We are. Now, some people won't admit it, but we are. That's one of the things about us as we come together as the church. The church is not for perfect people. That's why we're here, because we understand that we've fallen short. We understand that we need a Savior. If you are here because you think you're doing God a favor, you need to read that parable again. We are here because it's a Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't do it myself. Some people have saved sex for marriage and others have not. But we've all engaged in lustful thinking and behaviors that don't represent God's design for our sexuality. Listen, God doesn't see us in categories of our sexuality. God sees us as his loved creation, deceived by sin and rebellious in our sin. That's how God sees us. God doesn't look at us and see heterosexuals, homosexuals, adulterers, non-adulterers. What does God see? God sees his creation who has been deceived by sin and who is rebellious because of our sin. He sees us in the light of his love and redemption. That's how God sees us. Jesus' interactions and stories often highlighted two approaches to sin and to weakness. And if we're not careful, we fall into these same traps. But listen, Jesus told story over and over and over. And he says, I'm talking to you. Those of you that know me, be careful that you are not arrogant and trusting in your own righteousness. He told the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son goes while living, right? Wine, women, and all other things. And he comes home. But who, who's the parable really about? The older brother. The one who didn't go, who got angry, right? Jesus told the, the parable. It shouldn't be called the parable of the prodigal son. It should be called the parable of the older brother. It was the older brother who had a problem with his younger brother coming back. How about Lazarus and the rich man? Here's this rich man who had everything in life. But it was Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 who was comforted. The woman called in adultery and her accusers. Who was left at the end? It was the woman called in adultery. And Jesus didn't condemn her and he didn't condone her. He said, go and sin no more. His intention was not to categorize us according to our sin or brokenness, but bring us into the light of how our lives can have fulfillment and meaning. We want to categorize people all the time. It gives us a little control. It gives us a little power. It makes us feel good. And so we categorize people, and we all do it. We, we categorize people by 
by ethnicity. We categorize them by, by sexual orientation. We categorize them by financial status. We categorize them by whatever it is. But God sees what his love creation that he's drawing back into a relationship with him that only he can change. And so Jesus over and over and over said, I am not categorizing people, but I want them to be changed. I want them to be free. I want them to be delivered from their sin. With every sexual choice, action, or belief, each of us is either working to restore that metaphor of sexuality that God has given us or participating in Satan's scheme of vandalizing it. Listen, we may hate sex trafficking, but we still think of sex as a commodity that we can do whatever we want for our own pleasure. We can rail about the injustices of the world, but in our own hearts, still not be honoring God. Don't you ever find yourself double-minded at times? I mean, we do. We, we, we hate the enemy's distortion of sex, but then we embrace it at the same time. We, all, we don't all embrace it in the same ways, but we all embrace it in some way. We all have this broken view. And so there's this double-minded in us. We hate it. We hate the things we hate, but there's the things that we still do, and there's this conflict within us. None of us has escaped the fallout of Satan's schemes. If you are alive, if you are more than six days old at this place today, you have not out escaped uh, Satan's schemes. We've all been discipled by the world. David Platt says this, I and every reader are guilty at multiple levels of sexual thought, desire, speech, and deed outside of marriage between a husband and wife. None of us are innocent of sexual immorality and none of us are immune to it. What does that do that humbles us? We say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Some people, more than others, bear the scars of Satan's work. Those who have suffered sexual trauma, abuse, and we don't minimize their pain. We don't say that we've all been sexually broken. We're not minimizing pain, but we've all been broken to degrees, right? None of us is immune. In the Old Testament, there was a story of Tamar. She was the object of Amnon's desire and his violence. She didn't do anything to deserve it. And she lived in a seclusion for the rest of her life. And countless men and women today are, are victims of abuse and brokenness. But God sees our pain. And he ministers to broken heart. And he does not view them differently or in a different spiritual category from those who have escaped such tragedies. Those who have suffered abuse and have been at the receiving end of sexual harm, God does not view them in different categories because God does not categorize us by our sexuality, by our brokenness. He sees us what? As creatures made in his image and he wants to restore back to the beauty of his creation. God offers to redeem the lives of men and women who have this deep so he can show his power and his love and his mercy. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Jesus, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Now think about in the Gospels, how much do you learn from the nature of God from the religious leaders? I mean, how much do you learn about the nature of God from even the disciples? Like, you can look at the disciples and, and Peter, and you can say, man, I really see, I can see God's character in Peter. What would you learn from God if all you had was Peter? That God was a hothead, right? What, what would we learn from, if we had the religious leaders, and we looked at them, and what would we learn from God, from them? Uh, judgmental, right? And, and, and arrogant. But where do we see 
God's nature most clearly displayed in the Gospels. It was in those who were broken. You see, Jesus kept trying to teach his disciples, but it just wasn't sinking in. And so he demonstrated his power and his love and his mercy most profoundly to hurting people. He healed the blind man. He gave water to an immoral Samaritan woman. He wept with a grieving sister, and he raised a man from the dead. Here's what we know. The lives of the broken show us the truth about God. The lives of the broken show us the truth about God. We only know, uh, we only know that God is merciful. Why? Because we're sinners. God doesn't have to show mercy to someone who's not sinned against him. We only know about God's grace. Why? Because we are sinners. You don't have to be gracious to someone who has not offended you. You don't have to forgive someone who has hurt you. We only know mercy and forgiveness and the grace of God as he relates to who? Sinners and to broken people. And the deep pain of of brokenness in us and around us should cause us to be humble instead of proud. Believers, we have nothing to be prideful of in ourselves. It's about Jesus. Not the false humility like this Pharisee. It was this humility, right? Lord, I thank you. You know, this, this is like the person who's offended you, and they, they give you an apology, and the apology goes something like this. Well, I'm sorry that you were so mad at me. What'd they just do? They put it back on you. They didn't apologize for anything. I'm sorry that you got so upset. That's what the Pharisee was, this false humility. It's the realization that those who have the deepest scars have the most profound things to teach us about the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Listen, the deeper your scar, the deeper the grace and the mercy of God can go into your life. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield... She was a lesbian professor at Syracuse University, and her life was changed by Jesus. She was counseling a young woman who was a closeted lesbian attending a Bible-believing church. And the woman confided in Rosaria, and she said this, If people in my church really believed that gay people could be transformed by Christ, they wouldn't talk about us or pray about us in the hateful way that they do. And Rosaria writes this, And I read this last week, and this statement is still haunting me. Christian reader, right? She turns it back, she's talking. Is this what people say about you when they hear you talk and pray? Then she says this. Do your prayers rise no higher than your prejudice? Not only about gays and lesbians, but what about people of other races? What about people of other political parties? How about we talk about our government officials, right? How we talk about the president, right? It goes both for uh, President Obama and President Trump, right? Do we pray against people or do we intercede for people? Lord, I want them to be like me. Why can't they come to my position, right? We're praying against them. Do our prayers rise no higher than our prejudices? We pray blessing with no strings attached. We don't pray for curses. What do we pray? And we pray because we are humbled to know this God. You see, we stop hiding the truth at what? Isaiah 53 says this. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. 
We find a place for them with dependence on Jesus, with lives that show other people how great God is. Our sexual sins can humble us. It can form character and mercy when we surrender. Julie Slattery says this, There are two kinds of people. Those who are so broken they believe they can't be whole, and those who believe they are so whole that they can never be broken. And Lord, give us repentance and humility to see in our brokenness, right, that we can be made whole. The paradox of Jesus and his call on our lives is this. The rest of Isaiah 53 is he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, what? We are healed. So the paradox is this. When I understand I'm broken, then I can be healed. When I understand who I am. You see, spiritual pride may be the biggest barrier to wholeness, sexual wholeness or otherwise. Spiritual pride is always a barrier to its hold. We we talk about we talk about gay pride parades, but Christians, we listen, we have our own pride parades as well. We parade around prideful that we're not like somebody else. We parade around prideful that we don't sin like other people. We are oftentimes in our own pride parade. But God says, no, 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 no. You have sinned just like them. The people that you are hating, the people that you are cursing, the people that you are saying derogatory things about, I don't see you two differently. I see two sinners in need of saving. In fact, I see one person who should know better and doesn't. I see broken people who need Jesus. At best, we have pity on the broken, but we smugly congratulate ourselves. Oh, Lord, thank you. I'm not like them. Lord, thank you that I don't do what they do. We don't see the power of Christ until, until we change our prayer from, Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like them, to, Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You are never going to experience freedom in your life and the life that God has for you, as long as your prayers are, Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. But God will honor the prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, a sinner. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. There's a, there's a story, and Jesus, in his masterful way, once again, tells us this story in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So here goes Jesus. Oh, Jesus, right? Eating with those tax collectors and sinners again. But this time, he's going into the religious leader's house. He's going to one of the good people, one of the righteous people, right? And behold, a woman of the city, here she comes, who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, and why is Jesus telling us this parable? For two reasons. One, it's for the woman, but it's also for the Pharisee. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to this himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner. Now, the funny thing about Jesus is he was a prophet, and he knew exactly who she was and exactly who she was touching him. And Jesus said, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And Simon said, say it, teacher. Now, what do you suppose Simon was expecting Jesus to say? Simon was probably expecting Jesus to say, well, Simon, you are right. 
This woman is a sinner. I'm going to escort her out of the house so that us non-sinners now can eat our meal in peace. So what does Jesus do? He tells another story. There were two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for he has canceled the larger debt. He says, you judge rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. So he's pointing to the woman, but he's talking to Simon. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, Jesus didn't minimize, right? Jesus doesn't condone. He doesn't say she's fine, just leave her alone. He's like, no, she has many sins are forgiven. The healing, right? The restoration. For she loved much, but he was forgiven. Little loves little. He said, your sins are forgiven. And then people got upset. Well, who is this to forgive the sins? Right? They miss the point. I want to ask you a question. Who are you in the story? Are you the woman before she crashes the party? Think about this woman. She had a reputation. When she came in, what did Simon say? Simon said, here is this sinner. Now, he didn't greet a stranger at his door and say, hi, I'm Simon, what's your name? And she said, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a sinner from town. Oh, good to meet you. Her reputation preceded her. And so was she, where she was originally was what? She thought she was too broken to be healed. She thought she was not worthy to be around Jesus. She lacked the courage to run Jesus and to be set free from sin. But here she comes, right? Or the second person in this story, or first, maybe you were there. You feel like, I can relate to this woman. I have messed up. And I can't approach Jesus. You know, that's why people stay away from church. People stay away from church for some reason. Because they think, hey, I've sinned and now I can't go to church. Listen, that's why you should come, right? It's the people who think, I haven't sinned, that's why I need to go, who are in trouble. It's those who say, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, Lord, I need to go once again. And I need to come near to Jesus. But maybe you're at that place where you feel like, hey, I just cannot approach Jesus. Or maybe you're the second kind of person. You're too proud to be healed. Who also needed the healing in this story? Simon, right? Simon invited Jesus to the house, hosted Jesus for dinner, and he was in the same room as Jesus, but his heart was far from him. Because Jesus told the parable. And basically he said, Simon, I'm going to tell you a story about which one of you loves me the most. You are the sinner. And the story was the sinner. Jesus is saying, love me the most. You see, we can be in the same room as Jesus, but we can be too proud. We can say, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like these other people. I'm glad I'm I'm not, I've got the thing down, right? I'm I'm sinless, or uh, or we we excuse our sin, right? And all those kinds of things. And so we, we arrogantly believe that we have the right to be near Jesus because we haven't sinned. That somehow we have the right to have him over for dinner because of our goodness. So maybe you feel like you're too proud to be healed and don't recognize the utter depth of the sin and how God sees that. Or perhaps you're like the woman weeping. You are humbled in order to be healed. You understand that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. You understand that in our brokenness, we say, Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Listen, the gospel is not a club, but a key. We want to use the gospel to club people over the head and put them in order. But it's a key. Jesus said to Peter, I give you the what? 
The keys to the kingdom. What does the key do? The the key unlocks a door, and in the case of our sin, it unlocks the cell door that we are imprisoned to our sin. And so we give people the gospel as a key to release them. Not as a club to beat them over the head and say, look how how awful you are and how, how good I am. It's always a key to freedom. It's not a way to make people be like us, but to have people fall in love with Jesus so he can change them and transform them. We still call sin, sin. We still say there are offenses to a holy God. We don't minimize the truth of God's word, but we aren't the ones who can ultimately do the healing. It's Jesus. And we provide them the key. It's always Jesus. Jesus is the key to freedom. Jesus is the key to freedom in your life. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Have you heard the gospel? Like, that's the gospel, right? The gospel is this. You are more messed up and more broken and more sinful than you ever thought you were. And you thought you were a pretty good guy or a pretty good lady, right? No, Jesus is saying, you are, you are horrible. <laughs> you are awful. But you are more loved and accepted in Jesus than you ever dared hope. At the very same time. That's the gospel. And we come to him. And Jesus is the one who forgives us. Jesus is the one who restores us. And how does he do that? In our humility. We beat our breasts. We say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's why we gather around the Lord's table every Sunday. It reminds us of the great cost of our freedom. There's only one who's perfect. Jesus. And we killed him for it. He took the sins of the world on himself. He took sins of the world, even sexual sins, upon himself so that we can be free. He doesn't want us to hide. He wants us to be healed. He doesn't want us to be uh, uh, in, uh, remain in our brokenness. He wants to make us whole. You might have seen this video clip floating around the internet, but I think this explains very well the power of the gospel. Occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know. And so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, This is the relationship we had just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, and, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, why, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he 
smelled it, and he showed how pretty it was, and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it, and I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what, honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip. And you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger. And it was all I could do, not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. That's the gospel. I had to sing that clip for a couple years and it gets me every time. Jesus wants the rose. You and I are the rose. We have all been broken. We have all been bruised. We have all been battered. And the world says to us, who would want you? And Jesus says, I want you. That's why I came. That's why I lived and I died. I can take your broken life and heal you and mend you and put you back together again. Jesus wants you. So we don't have to hide. We don't have to be proud, but in our humility and in our humbleness, we can say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're going to have a, share a time of communion. We're going to do it a little special and different today. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. And when you're ready, and if you want to partake of communion, you come forward. And I want you to grab the elements, but I also want you to take a rose. You're going to take this with you. Guys, you might want to stick it in your lapel pocket or hole, buttonhole or whatever. Take this as a reminder. Put it somewhere, maybe at work, on your rearview mirror. You're the rose. Jesus died for us, and he came for us for all of our brokenness and for all of the, the damage that we have done in our own lives and the damage that others have done to us. Jesus wants the rose. I want you to grab the rose and the bread and the juice and then go back to your seat and just sit down and just quietly meditate and reflect on all that we've talked about this morning. Listen, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus than you ever dared hope. That's the hope of the gospel. Maybe you just want to quietly reflect, maybe confess some sin, maybe say, Lord, I felt like this rose, but thank you for reminding me once again that this is what Jesus came for. It's his broken body and his shed blood. So would you please stand, and we're going to pray. And when you're ready, come. And even if you don't want to partake of communion, at least come and grab a rose, because sometimes we just need this visual reminder. Communion is visual. It's the bread and the juice, and it tastes. It's engaging our senses. And sometimes we just need the reminder that Jesus wants the rose. He wants you.
Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel, for the shed blood of Jesus. And God, in our brokenness, we want to humbly stand before you this morning and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, me, first person, me. But God, thank you in the gospel. We are forgiven and set free through the shed blood of Jesus and his broken body. So God, these next few moments, it's just a special time of worship as we remember who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.